0: So I'm Dr. Katia Rivera from Portland State University's Environmental Science and Management Department. And I'm here with some teammates who worked with me in the Portland area to study habitat connectivity and other types of connectivity. In 2018, I was at a meeting of our regional habitat connectivity working group and realized that the practitioners in the group really would benefit from work that showed the various benefits of habitat connectivity. So I thought it'd be fun to do this with a student group and not only fun, but that way we'd get more perspectives going into it. And I just advertised to see what students would be interested in joining us to come up with a literature review and some creativity in there too with benefits from connectivity. There's a 2007 paper by Fisher and Lindemeyer that looked at connectivity of habitat patches as well as ecological processes and landscape connectivity sort of vegetative cover with a GIS perspective and I set out really to come up with benefits from each of those and we really developed that much further. I have here with me uh, Carol Hardy and Eric Butler.
1: Hi, I'm Carol Hardy. Uh, I had the fortune of working with CAT on connectivity projects and as a student at PSU at the time Um, My passion has always been forest management, and as I got into my master's program, I started to focus more on urban forest ecosystems, so the concept of connectivity began to take shape in my mind as a really important thing to try to advocate for in creating resilient cities. So my, my previous career, I was in communications, so what my angle on this project was, was to consider how we create shared understanding about the value of connected ecosystems and urban environments. Thanks,
0: Carol. And Eric, can you introduce yourself as well?
2: Hi, my name is Eric Butler. I am currently a riparian specialist with the Watershed Council called the Clackamas River Basin Council, but I was at Portland State University at the same time as Carol, and I was also doing work on urban forests and thinking about kind of landscape scale processes operating within these ecosystems. They have as much of a geography background as an ecology background. I'm really interested in spatial processes in ecosystems and think about how these fit with these sort of system-level perspectives and these questions that aren't don't just make sense that kind of the local scale, what are you doing at this particular site, but how does this fit with everything that's going on around them? And that's something that's very much continuing into my current work as well.
0: So as we discussed connectivity more as a group and realized that we had a lot of ideas beyond just the original concept of ecosystem services for three types of connectivity and really started embracing eco-social com- connectivity and how to apply it we realized that portland is an excellent case study system for this and we should involve other thinkers beyond us and especially practitioners to see how they would use it and to apply the tools and thinking that we had created so far to the Portland area. Could I please have each of you introduce yourselves, where you work, and your interest in connectivity?
3: Um, so I am uh, San Disanayake. I'm an environmental resource economist um, in the economics department at uh, Portland State University. Um, and I'm also affiliated with the Institute for Sustainable Solutions as a faculty fellow. Um, and uh, I'm somebody who, you know, in terms of my research, I look at um, conservation, uh, land use, uh, and some climate change type of uh, type of work. Um, and I, I'm an associate professor in, in the economics department.
4: My name is Leslie Blis Ketchum, and I am currently the director and founder of Samara Group, uh, a environmental consulting firm that I started about seven or eight years ago now. And um, I have a long history within the company and also before that working as your student um, in the Rivera Lab um, on issues of habitat connectivity for wildlife. Um, uh, Ranging from assessing habitat structures, movements uh, under and over roads and uh, developing frameworks for urban biodiversity um, statewide assessments with the Oregon Connectivity Assessment and Mapping Project. That was one of our more recent projects uh, to help assess connectivity at a statewide scale. So- My name is Jennifer Karps, and
5: I work for the City of Portland with a bureau called Environmental Services, and I'm one of the green professionals. I work with a program that, well, I used to work with a program that did a lot of tree planting, and now I'm working with a program that provides community grants for folks to invest in um, in, in projects that help improve watershed health. So lots of native plant planting, um, community gardens, that sort of thing.
6: Uh, hi, my name is Lori Hannings. I'm a natural resource scientist from Metro, that's the regional government in the greater Portland area. and. Um, Wildlife corridors and habitat connectivity have been uh, really a career-long interest for me, and um, that's why I formed the Habitat Connectivity Work Group here in the Greater Portland Region. And there are so many of us working together on it. It's really wonderful. And so many pieces that come back in together. And the work that uh, Carol and Eric have been doing are feeding right back into our process right now. We're just at a point where we're ready to go forward and get ready to go out and think about talking to communities, finding out what they need.
0: We have here Eric and Carol, because each of them is a lead author on a paper that stemmed from that initial group. Would each of you talk about um, the papers that you created? Tell us the title and how we can get there, and then we can explore the ideas in those papers more as we continue talking.
2: So the paper I was the lead author on is called Habitat, geophysical, and ecosocial connectivity. Benefits of resilient socio-ecological landscapes. It was published in Landscape Ecology in 2021. Uh, we were starting out asking a question, what are the kind of tangible benefits of conserving connectivity and really having that be a focus within conservation initiatives? But we are realizing, too, that kind of based on this Fisher and Lindenmeyer paper and some other work that we've been doing both within and beyond the group, is that there's really a lot of missing pieces there. Uh, one thing we realized is that most of the literature and connectivity really doesn't think about humans as being an integral part of the landscape. And most are kind of, there managing these ecosystems externally, but we are part of the landscape. We are part of the environment. And that wasn't really acknowledged in a lot of the literature we're seeing. Another thing that we started to realize too, is that perhaps the idea of ecosystem services, while valuable, isn't maybe necessarily the best kind of lens to look at all the benefits and values of ecosystems and landscapes. But so as we we're doing our literature review, we also realized that these categories aren't necessarily separate things from each other there's a lot of overlaps or a lot of synergies or a lot of trade-offs and so coming with this more systems perspective where we're thinking about the biotic and abiotic parts of the ecosystem and then think about the role of humans in the landscape and think about how all these parts interact with each other and all these overlapping values and all these decisions that have to get made around it this really grew into a much more complicated project but our big takeaway first is that there are really four kinds of ecological connectivity that we looked at. And so the first was landscape connectivity, which is this kind of GIS-based tabletop exercise perspective. Where are the different patches of stuff on the landscape? What does it look like on the map? Are there visible corridors between point A and point B? And then also kind of the design and engineering perspective. How do we, if we build a corridor do we assume that whatever the corridor exists for is going to serve that function? Uh, Then, of course, habitat connectivity is kind of the classic version that most people have heard of. People are familiar with these wildlife crossing structures and removing fish passage barriers and protecting wildlife corridors between large conservation spaces and things like that. That's kind of the concept that comes to mind for most people when you mention the word connectivity. Uh, Geophysical connectivity, which is our term for what Fisher and Lindermeyer originally called ecological connectivity. We thought the geophysical would be more clear as a way of kind of defining this idea. That's about the abiotic components of the ecosystem. This is everything from hydrology and floodplains and such to things like soil stability, temperature, uh, solar input, all these things that are these kinds of physical processes in the landscape. And those all have their own connectivity considerations as well. And then because finally there's this human component in the landscape that, especially when you're starting to talk about things like environmental justice and how do we integrate that into our planning and conservation processes, we really needed to think about that. And so we coined the term eco-social connectivity to think about the connectivity of People in the landscape and their access to nature and the benefits of nature. And so we went through and we just did a lot of literature review, read a lot of papers, cast around for as many different ideas and examples as we could find to sort of flesh out this whole story of all these different kinds of connectivity and why they matter and all the benefits they provide, and also some of the trade offs and risks that come along with them. there are a lot of, any sort of conservation work you're going to do will have trade-offs. You could have incredible benefits like bringing wildlife into new areas and making sure that populations stay connected, but sometimes you can also have wildlife moving to areas where there's going to be conflict. You could have people getting exposed to disease issues from increasing access to nature in some areas, or you could have people where are where we have people moving into this wildlife habitat, sort of driving the wildlife out, where we have people developing new floodplains. And so all these different things to think about that could be good, could be bad, could be somewhere in the messy middle. And so being able to put all these different pieces together and think about, okay, how do we make decisions based around all these values, all these benefits, all these risks? And that's kind of what led into the second paper as well, because we realized that we needed this decision-making framework.
0: Yeah. So, Carol, can you tell us about the paper that you were lead author on its name and uh, the main take home messages from it?
1: Sure. So, again, it's Carol with an E.L. Hardy. If you're looking for the paper, uh, it's called Ecosystem Connectivity for Livable Cities, a Connectivity Benefits Framework for Urban Planning. So as I I mentioned, my my career was focused on communications, but when I went back and studied environmental management and science, I I tried to apply the concepts of how you get broad stakeholder groups to agree on um, decisions. And what seemed apparent to me, also having worked with practitioners in the city of Portland and teaching students at PSU, you you see all the diverse ways that people consider values of things in their city. So what I started thinking about as we considered these four different types of connectivity and tried to package it into ecosystem-level thinking I started thinking about what what do planners in the city of Portland, what are they faced with? So they are given a lot of goals that have been established by agencies in the cities or city government. And then they need to look across landscapes to think about how they create livable cities, primarily for people. When you start layering onto that the, the Um, working group that we were focused on was about habitats you really started to see where you get conflicts in different land management goals and particularly in restoring ecosystems for habitats unless you translate projects that benefit animals and animal movement through cities into terms that people can latch on to and understand, you have very little opportunity to come up with projects conservation efforts that really restore ecosystem function. So this connectivity benefits framework was an effort is an effort to look at the overlapping benefits of restoring ecosystems in terms that focus on habitats that focus on geophysical function and focus on benefits to people and used a framework that was developed at Duke University called Benefit Relevant Indicators which express co-benefits in something other than monetary terms. It it was observed by all of us that what you often run into is, well, there isn't enough money to restore everything. It's cheaper to look at building out a solution. If you don't integrate uh, green infrastructure, there isn't a way to quantify the benefits of green infrastructure and the benefits, you know, in a budget sheet. So we looked at a way to create a framework that captured co-benefits in terms that were important to the different stakeholders in a region. The other thing that we thought was really important is, for example, if you start talking about building habitat corridors through a city, immediately you're going to have some groups say, well, what are the risks associated with that? So our framework not only captures benefits, but it also captures risks of connectivity. So those are openly discussed. There's opportunity to dispel myths. There's opportunity to look at mitigating risks. And you're doing it in a context where you have multiple people at a table trying to discuss uh, the best way to conserve resources, create co-benefits, and do it in um, terms that everyone can share in those discussions.
0: And in the, the Benefits of Resilient Social Ecological Landscapes, our first paper, we used the ecosystem services concept, but we didn't monetize any of the services. Sahan, as an economist, what's your perspective of ecosystem services concept when the services aren't monetized?
3: So the ecosystem services concept, you know, goes back, I would say perhaps 25 years to some of the earliest work um, that was done, uh, I think late nineties on trying to understand what's the the value of nature, what are the benefits that we're getting from nature that then followed up with the Millennium Ecosystem Assessment in 2005, which was an effort to try to quantify Uh, what's happening to nature and also come up with a framework that allows a cross-disciplinary dialogue around this right so this idea of ecosystem services as a uh, a classification system as a way for economists to talk with ecologists to talk with planners Um, so the way I think about it the idea of ecosystem services is you know can we have a common framework that allows us to both look at the ecosystems and and what comes out of the ecosystems in terms of ecosystem services, the benefits, and then how do we bring that into human decision-making? So the monetizing is, I think, an important part um, because it allows planners and decision-makers to compare potential benefits uh, and outcomes, but it's not a necessary part to actually use that framework. Um, So again, the, the way I approach this is You know, there are some things that can be easily monetized. There are other things that might be hard, but can be monetized. And there are other benefits and services that we get that it's important that we recognize and acknowledge them into the the decision-making process, but we may not actually be able to monetize them either because it's ethically not able, you're able to do that, or we don't have enough information. And I think the important part is that we acknowledge and recognize those benefits, even when they're not being monetized. Um, So I think it's important to keep in mind that not everything that uh, comes up from the ecosystem service framework or that might be included in sort of our eco-social connectivity um, might have a dollar value next to it. Um, But I think that can still be useful um, to the planning process.
0: So while we didn't monetize anything in either paper, in the other paper, the ecosystem connectivity for livable cities one, we did use benefit-relevant indicators, which you've already brought up. And we also use what we called risk-relevant indicators to enable both monetary and non-monetary valuation of benefits. So I also wanted to get your perspective on why benefit-relevant indicators or risk-relevant ones are helpful.
3: Yeah, so I think um, the fundamental aspect of benefit-relevant indicators is that you're looking at outputs in terms of benefits from an anthropocentric point of view, but outputs that are coming from a causal chain. So it allows us to link ecological actions or ecological outputs um, through some process, benefits that accrue to humans, um, for example. And the benefit-relevant indicators are useful to ensure that we understand what that causal chain is and what the outputs are. Um, So it's effectively an ecological production function that tells us what the outputs um, are from a human point of view. Um, so I think that's that's an important step to know so that we can see how changes on the landscape, how policy actions or tools that we use you know, end up, You know, the causal chain allows us to track what happens um, and then how the, the benefits um, get impacted at the end. So the benefit-relevant indicators um, are the, the outputs that we can use to measure the impacts of that policymakers are taking or that we're actually trying to take on the landscape.
0: Um, cool. Thank you for those perspectives. What do you think is most interesting or important about the ecosystem services of the four types of connectivity?
3: Yeah, so that's a, I think a, a sort of the, the crux of, of the, the, the papers that we've worked on. Um, Again, you know, you're a, um, an ecologist uh, and the ecological literature has looked at connectivity for, for decades, right? This idea of um, connectivity from a functional point of view, from a structural point of view. And I actually had some work that looked at um, species connectivity in work that I've been doing you know, about a decade ago on military landscapes and conservation aspects. And the part that's been missing in a lot of that discussions about connectivity is the human side of things. And, you know, going back to some of the earliest discussions that we had, uh, part of this was the reading group, uh, part of this was, you know, reading the papers, um, trying to understand the human side of connectivity. Um, And this first paper is looking at how we can expand the idea of connectivity into thinking of human impact. So this idea of eco-social connectivity, which builds on habitat connectivity, geophysical connectivity and landscape landscape connectivity, um, and trying to think about how are people connected into this landscape. Um, So this to me is fundamentally important as an economist because a lot of what we do in conservation um, ends up coming back to having people engage with uh, conservation outcomes, having people support conservation uh, initiatives. uh, And more and more, we are actually learning also about, especially in an urban setting, the benefits that we get um, from conserved areas, from having people engage with nature, from going to nature, from even if you're not directly going into nature, the the positive air quality benefits, hydrological benefits that we get in urban areas, um, uh, from having uh, green space, uh, urban forests and so on. So this idea of, eco-social connectivity that tries to think about how humans are connected with nature. uh, And are we actually able to access nature and use nature, uh, receive those benefits, I think is fundamentally important in in the planning process. Um, So as an economist that studies nature and conservation, to me, this was a a key contribution that um, was focusing on in the paper.
0: That's great. Thanks for those insights.
1: So I think one the what got attention with the first paper um, was including eco social connectivity into this systems thinking and trying to understand what we meant by that um, is interesting because if you think about it, it is talking about people having access to, in this case, benefits of nature. You quickly start getting into environmental justice discussions, which is a critical part really of talking about what is happening in urban systems. And you have this inequity you have inequitable access to green spaces and clean water and clean air. So when you start layering on or maybe make it the core of your um, discussions is eco-social connectivity and connecting people to benefits equally is really uh, an important part of this connectivity
4: concept. Habitat connectivity is one of these um, really essential underpinnings of having healthy wildlife populations and healthy ecosystems. You know, these animals and plants and um, ecological processes need to be able to move across the landscape. That's fundamentally how they function and thrive. And so that's a necessary thing across all scales. You know, connectivity also has this whole question of, you know, at what scale are you trying to connect things? Are you trying to connect things from one neighborhood to the next or from one state to the next? And the, the way that you think about that and how you apply tools to that are very different. Um, and when we think about large landscapes, we're really looking typically the focus is on where do we have just big open spaces, where are there no human settlements, how do we kind of move wildlife through um, those areas that are that are still considered sort of untouched by by human development, at least by cities, uh, specifically as human development, because there's really lots of development everywhere <laughs> from energy siting and, and farming, et cetera. Uh, ranching. Um, But really, as we start to focus in on urban systems, it's also essential for both the human populations within it and the wildlife populations to be able to move through those urban areas. You know, we're not totally independent from our connection with nature. Cities are large and they continue to grow. Um, And as they grow, they're going to take up more space and, and move out further. And so if we can start building in Connectivity concepts early, we can maintain that movement through there for as many species as possible. Um, You know, I think it's easy for us to forget that cities uh, were generally founded in areas of high biodiversity in the first place, again, because we depend on those spaces and we depend on those resources as humans existing, you know, coexisting in this environment. Um, And so, with that knowledge, that helps us recognize that. Cities actually have a lot of biodiversity. There's there's biodiversity hotspots within urban areas in many many locations within the United States and of course beyond uh, much beyond. But again, I'm going to be focused on the U.S. <laughs> in my perspective. Um, and so you know, keeping that in mind and not ignoring the fact that cities have a lot of biodiversity to preserve and maintain um, helps us work on these concepts and not think of cities as just, nope, we're going to write them off completely and not consider them for connectivity because it's a waste of time. Well, it's absolutely not a waste of time. Um, There's a lot there to to hold on to and preserve.
2: I think that really gets to why connectivity matters fundamentally as well, because it's this it's this sort of systematic contextual approach to conservation. It's this is this problem that happens throughout the conservation world, even where there are really good intentions, that you end up with these sort of piecemeal pro- opportunistic processes. You're conserving a project because it's sort of a, or doing a conservation project because it's this low hanging fruit, because there's some willing landowner there who wants to work with you because this one space has been identified as being kind of a high priority, but at the same time, the conservation that happens is so fragmented and so disconnected from other work that's happening, and there isn't this perspective to think about how everything fits together, that you end up not really conserving anything effectively. You might be conserving one little piece of wildlife habitat they aren't protecting enough of a range for the wildlife to fulfill its whole needs. Or you might be protecting a little stretch of river, but there's so many impacts coming from elsewhere in the watershed that doing this one project out of context isn't making that much of a difference. And so by bringing, by using connectivity as a lens, you're really kind of bringing in so many of these systems and spatial perspectives that it kind of forces you to think more comprehensively and think more about these overlapping benefits and these different kinds of needs that interact with each other. And that was kind of some of her impetus for writing these papers as well.
1: So what, one of the reasons why it's really important to consider this eco-social aspect is in Portland all over the world equitable access to resources is becoming a more and more focused conversation and to to lead with eco-social connectivity could be a powerful way to say this is what cities are all about we are trying to solve these difficult problems and if you make that the core of your discussion and then you start layering on geophysical connectivity. What is it that we are trying to give access to? If you think about it then in terms of clean water and clean air and shade and sequestering carbon, things that are protecting people, it it really is an interesting way to then start thinking about, well, okay, now you can layer on habitat connectivity to say what is the importance of biodiversity in urban areas in the context of how do we make this a resilient, livable city for all of the people in the region. So it it really gave a different lead in to the discussions and certainly um, supports goals that are important, at least in the Portland area, to look at uh, writing injustices and equitable access to resources including food security, which when you start layering on geophysical um, features, you're talking about soil uh, restoration and urban agriculture. So looking at it from that eco-social standpoint really
5: starts to shift the conversation. I think, um, you know, to be quite frank about it, it's important to consider environmental justice in really all of our activities, uh, particularly when we're planning, so thinking about um, our activities that will make a big splash over time. Um, and that's because, uh, and I, just to um, to frame this, I do work for the City of Portland, so that's where my primary professional focus has been. Um, so when I'm speaking about the communities, I'm thinking of the communities that we serve in Portland. but it's important to consider environmental justice and connectivity planning so that the communities who have suffered the most historically and who are continuing to suffer are not increasingly burdened. In other words, in Portland, wealthier, whiter communities enjoy greater access to nature and the benefits that come from living in, for example, a well-treated environment. And then, um, less wealthy, less white communities, black, indigenous and people of color communities are forced to live in the margins, hotter, grayer, more polluted areas. And there are plenty of data to to demonstrate this. You know, you can look at redlined maps, you can look at tree canopy cover maps and so on. We need to be mindful as um, people who are um, in the public trust who are spending public resources of our responsibility to acknowledge this and to redress those wrongs that have been done, those environmental harms, those social harms to people. So I think specifically with respect to connectivity, if we look first to connect the largest and best protected habitats, we're going to run the risk of widening that gap even further and between the haves and have-nots. And worse, we might inadvertently siphon off resources that should be directed towards EJ communities. And um, we certainly do not want to do that. I think
6: it's I think, you know, looking at the social aspect of things is really vital Um, and it's something earlier in my career I kind of um, pushed against Uh, nature is nature that's exactly what we have to protect and people are harming it and, um, you know, I've come around as I've um, listened a lot and learned a lot in my career to understand that it's not going to work to be able to try to conserve nature, if we don't bring people into the equation.
0: I've been on that same journey. I was just such a deep ecologist to begin with, and I kind of still am of really valuing nature for nature's sake. Right. But, but I also value people and people's experiences, and uh, not just for utilitarian reasons, but right. for the utilitarian reason, it also, like, how how can you get anything done without also looking for people's interests in it?
6: That's right, you know, and uh, there's been a terrible unfairness in nature, right? Uh, the the communities that have the least nature also tend to be the most underserved in our region, right? The people where there are BIPOC communities, places where uh, there are a lot of rental apartments, um, things like that. And these folks don't, they're often trying to put food on their table for their children, right? And so they don't have time necessarily to go out and nurture and care for nature, for nature, Um unless they learn that it's important and uh, understand and are also approached in a way that helps them understand that we're here to help them and we need them to help us.
0: I want to ask each of you, what do you see as the benefits from centering eco-social connectivity as part of natural resource management?
5: There's a pragmatic piece to this, which is, I'm grateful to say, at least from where I sit, my city and my community is really beginning to focus, beginning to um, really take seriously this issue of environmental justice and this issue of not all of our community members are situated the same and to serve all residents equitably means, doesn't mean giving everyone the same thing, you know. Um, you're not going to put a baby in a front seat and put the lap belt on him. You know that's that's not safety, right? You you're going to put them in the in the baby carrier in the back seat where, and keep them safe. Um, so I think um, in terms of centering eco-social connectivity, the pragmatic approach is that we are we are endeavoring to center EJ communities, frontline communities, disadvantaged communities with all of the work that we're doing. And so why would this be any different? and going to a, a place, a procedural place where this is how we do, then you know potentially we're gonna find all sorts of wonderful partners and partnerships and resources there that we may not have thought about before, we may not have seen possible. Um, so I think that's my sort of first answer to the question. And then I would just echo a little bit what I said before, which is that sort of narrowing that green gap, providing those additional opportunities for dialogue, for relationship building, um, for truth-telling between, in my case, city government or whatever entity is doing the service provisioning and the communities that we serve, the more we have opportunities to do that, more, the more we will build that muscle, and the more we will be, we, we will be able to deliver, um, you know, equitable service, excellent service to all residents, regardless of how they are situated. And I think, like so many other decisions that we make when we're making public investments, If in our efforts to increase habitat connectivity for critters, like plants and fish and animals, you know, we can also improve conditions for humans. And it's really, really important for us to do that.
4: Yeah, you know, the other thing about connectivity in urban areas is thinking about not just where existing connectivity is, but where connectivity could be added. Because there there is so such little open, truly open space left, Um, you know, that's the whole thing, that's why cities exist, is we're concentrating the development as well, Um, and so open space is at a premium, but where are there locations where there are opportunities to add a stepping stone for connectivity that then also increases all these other potential benefits for the people in the neighborhood or, or as a whole, and so It also ties into these different concepts, like like the luxury effect is one of these concepts in urban ecology where you find high biodiversity generally in um, wealthier neighborhoods Uh, and, you know, mechanisms behind that. We won't go into that right now, but but. How do we correct for that? Not not just, okay. we've recognized that that's a problem and we can see that on the landscape. So if you just looked at existing connectivity where where existing biodiversity is high, you would be planning connectivity through wealthy neighborhoods. Well, how is that? How does that get at environmental justice issues? And it's particularly restorative environmental justice. And I think that concept is really one that I get excited about when it comes to thinking about connectivity in urban systems because we could actually take the opportunity to go to an area that right now looks like there's no good connectivity, and think about how we can grow that up into something that will provide connectivity value and all these other aspects when we think about it multidimensionally. And in particular, when we can get people around the table that have those different perspectives and can communicate and work as a team. You know, I I know that I have a, a bias lens of thinking about the wildlife and the ecological needs, and that's just my training, that's where I've come from. I need the the economics person, I need this social justice person, I need the the community there to tell me their perspective and what they see and what they need, and then we can all work together and i can I can be like, oh, well, this is what I see from the wildlife perspective, and then we can see where we can gel together and that's 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 my vision <laughs> that would be amazing <laughs> for the future.
6: <laughs> the missing piece here has really been we've got what's left we've mapped what we think are wildlife corridors and stepping stone habitat patches. We want to know what else we need to do, because all we're looking at is what's remaining. That has no imagination. We artificially disconnect people and wildlife and the natural world. We are actually a wildlife species, if you want to think about it that way. We're an animal who, like all other animals, really rely on the environment. Um, And it's interesting, sometimes what I think about nature isn't really what other people in different places think about nature. I think about the woods and, you know, a stream and the birds singing and the deer walking by. Some people think that community gardens are nature and they are. In fact, they're wonderful habitat connectivity. And these are the kinds of things that we need to be open to listening to when we talk to other people that aren't biologists. We need to be able to hear the creativeness from other people Uh, to be able to change our ways that can kind of be set in stone about how we're going to do things. From a conservation standpoint, I think by asking local residents what they see, what they need and want are uh, much more likely to have their uh, conservation support as we move forward as well. There's a fairness issue and there's also a, a realistic issue of how we can work with people and wildlife in the urban places. I'm actually excited about moving forward in the Rickwigs Habitat Connectivity Work by thinking about an ecos- eco-social framework. Um, I think this is the way we have to go. We can't consider nature without people. Um, and so using this framework is really going to help us as we go forward as a work group. I hope we can employ it to uh, think about how we outreach to communities, who we outreach to. And um, what we want out of it and what we want for them out of it. We uh, actually want, the reason we're doing this is because it's unfair how the habitat is distributed in the the region. And and people in some communities are getting less than others. So it's it's really an essential fairness issue. But there are co-benefits because if we build new connectivity, if we rebuild connectivity in a place that doesn't have much, where people are underserved in nature... It's it's a win-win. It's a win-win for all of us.
0: Yeah, for sure. And so with that, not only can we realize more benefits for the different types of connectivity, but also get more, increase the likelihood of getting funding, get more buy-in, because we can find synergies across different goals that people might not think of as connectivity goals at all but do tie into one or more of these types of connectivity. And I really like, Carol, how you think of it as, of eco-social as the core place to start and building out from that, even if a large part of your goal is connectivity for wildlife through an urban area.
1: Yes, and you mentioned funding, cat, which right now is really relevant. Uh, of course, when we all get getting conver- conversations about conservation and land management choices and funding transportation system which inherently uh, cut across landscapes, we always get back to the argument of well there isn't enough funding to do it in a particular way there isn't enough funding for conservation there's huge opportunity with what Eric, I think, called the fire hose of federal funding that's available right now. That is, there is funding available specifically for connectivity, there is funding available for um, environmental justice initiatives. And what what I have heard is true is the, the places that organizations or cities have been really successful is when you get partners who are trying to achieve goals that are broad goals and taking on initiatives that are multi-year this may be a really excellent time to say okay let us layer on all of the co-benefits of connectivity and certainly putting climate change in there is key and you can look at the geophysical and eco-social aspects of how do we either mitigate or adapt to climate change, those are all integrated into land use decisions, conservation decisions uh, that are focused on connectivity. So seems like an opportunity to take the framework of looking at the co-benefits of the different types of connectivity and looking long-term to say, what are those decisions that we can make from a land use planning uh, perspective and frame it uh, in these different um, sets of benefits that come with the multiple aspects of connectivity.
0: We're talking a lot about benefits and have covered on a bunch of benefits from connectivity, but I'm thinking we came up with papers worth of <laughs> benefits, and I just wanted to give uh you each and other people who worked with us a chance to talk a little bit about the benefits they see, biggest benefits they see from either specific elements of connectivity or these approaches in addition to what you two have already covered. There are other points you wanna bring up.
1: So one of the things we did in the second paper, which was talking about the framework is we applied it to a real project, which is an expansion, of light rail that's scheduled uh, in the Portland area, and we used that framework and worked with a practitioner who had been on this light rail corridor um, project. That is Jennifer, who is with us, um, and we we defined potential benefits of thinking about connectivity and constructing a light rail system and then came up with specific actions that could be taken, such as building a vegetated overpass with fencing across one of the major areas that was going to be uh, integrate the light rail system. So in doing that, we said, here's actually a way to create access for pedestrians that is safer. It's a way to create a habitat corridor across a a road system or a rail system. So we went through this process and identified particular actions and benefits that would be associated with them and essentially also developed a list of best practices.
0: To make this more concrete for listeners, could you explain how environmental justice can be used or connectivity can be used to support environmental justice with the frameworks that we've laid out here.
1: So for an example, in the second paper, we take a real initiative, which is reconnecting a creek to a river. So Fano Creek, to Tualatin River. What we did when we say, okay, here's a particular initiative or action, will you layer on that to say, okay, well, how do we best do that? You could say, if we remove invasive species, that helps us create diversity of habitats and plantings. And then you could say, we replant natives, which are locally sourced. That gets to uh, an economic development and jobs benefit. And when you're using local sources, you can certainly say we are going to identify if there are particular groups that we want to involve such as underserved communities which we want to train in restoration. So if you start listing out then different types of benefits that could come from that in restoring this ecosystem, you could create green jobs within walking distance of neighborhoods. You're creating green spaces accessible uh, within walking distance of neighborhoods that may not now have that access. You're improving wildlife habitats by creating strips and patches of habitats through this reconnection. Um, By increasing diversity of plantings, you can increase the water filtration value, so you're helping uh, decrease the cost of water treatment downstream. If you're filtering the water through diverse vegetation, you decrease runoff. You could help with flooding that could be something that would impact a local neighborhood. Um, And you're in decreasing water temperatures so that uh, benefits juvenile salmon that are in the streams. So this is just one example of how to think about a project that may seem like a simple reconnection, but if you think about the different things that you're trying to achieve in that area, you not only look at habitat connectivity, but you start to pull in the environmental justice aspects and come up with the terms of a project that benefit the people in that area, both from a, access to green space and potentially a jobs perspective. So that, that's just one example of how you could think about this framework.
2: And the idea of the connectivity benefits framework is that you're really bringing in the local community to co-create this from the beginning. So you're not just showing up with a bunch of ideas and saying here's what we're going to do, or does that sound okay to you? That we're really kind of doing it in a way that's getting the community to buy in, but also doing in a way that's making sure that the community stands to benefit directly from the project in a way that's not just going to displace them down the road. So you're not just doing something that's going to make the area a lot nicer than price them out of their housing or things like that. It's really building the community in and the benefits to the community into the project in a way that's really sustainable to the people as well as to the ecosystem.
0: Well, and that's so important, given that not every community is going to have the same set of values and to make sure that you don't end up having unintended consequences of displacing people if you gen- gentrify with more greenery and access to parks, et cetera. And s- so that you're really fair and just to the community to just bring it in all along.
2: And it's really meant to be an iterative process. It's not a one and done you do your visioning process at the beginning, and then just launch into the work. You're continually going back and reevaluating and seeing where are we at, and how have, how have the values changed based on how the plans are evolving. And so it's, it's this constant process of getting feedback and adaptive management and learning from how the process is going and how the community feels about what's happening. So it's it has to stay reflective and reflexive like that.
4: Um,
6: One of the things I really appreciate about this information is the stepwise process that Carol and Eric have provided us with Going through a way to think about things differently, to talk to people in the community, to think about equity differently, and use some imagination with our communities to think about what could be. Um, Habitat connectivity doesn't have to be already what's on the ground. We can actually build or rebuild habitat connectivity in really strategic ways. And I love the approach of ecosystem services because we need to know what benefits
4: people as well, not just wildlife. You know, urban systems are just so dynamic. They change so much more quickly um, that it can be more challenging to kind of get a handle on even what the current state of things is. And so being able to um, be dynamic and try to do our best to have the most up-to-date information about places, um, especially in urban systems can be part of the challenge in doing work there on connectivity.
6: So this this kind of analysis adds so much possibility to building the fine scale analysis that are really needed in urban areas. It's so complex and so unforgiving uh, that we really need to go, do good planning in urban areas. And
1: right, and really critical. And what we just talked about is gentrification uh, clearly Uh, critical risk that needs to be addressed and addressed really at a region-wide level to say do we do we have a method by which we do not displace people as we restore ecosystems and make green spaces clean water clean air available to everyone what are those methods that we have avoid gentrification. Now, that's a big problem, but this is a method to put it on the table and say, if you keep reacting, um, you're not solving these larger problems. So if you look at it from an ecosystem level of looking at an ecosystem systematic approach, you then start to bring those risks in and say, okay, we need to change things at a deeper level in our region to address these environmental justice issues while not preventing us from planting more trees in um, urban heat islands. We should be able to figure out a way that that becomes what we should do Um, rather than being concerned about the risks of displacement.
6: Some of the places that we need for connectivity aren't there anymore. We'll have to rebuild them. So part of it is that some of these communities, we want to be able to go in and talk to them about, can we put some habitat through here to build a wildlife connectivity area? When you think about environmental equity, you can find explicit areas where there are greater need for nature that would also really help wildlife connectivity if it's done in strategic ways and places
1: yes and you know another uh way to think about how do you get people to think differently and where are the opportunities we've talked a lot about working at a project level the other thing that i do to advocate for connectivity in a different sort of grassroots way, which it, which is talking to people who live in the city who may own property or they want to work somewhere they can contribute to connectivity is through groups like the backyard habitat um, program, which works with people who have small yards and restore them with native plants and the whole push there is to say, think about this in terms of restoring habitat restoring soils uh, on a very small level and when you when you get that grassroots effort and you start getting people advocating for it it really starts to create a groundswell to say we as people who live in this community have the ability to advocate to restore our lands one yard one garden one public space at a time. The other program I work with is the OSU Extension Master Gardener Program, which is similarly starting to move towards how do we teach people to think about land management differently from a food security standpoint, rebuilding soils, attracting pollinators, which which that is an eco-social, Uh, connectivity piece in my mind is you're creating this network of informed people to say we really need to think about our environment differently.
2: So it's important to remember too that not everyone owns property. In fact, not everyone even has even the level of privilege of having stable housing. But these members of our community have just as much of say in what decisions get made and just as much interest in seeing good outcomes as anyone else does and so one of the biases that shows up so much in the conservation world is the landowner perspective we have to talk to the landowner because we need permission for the landowner to do work on the lands but this approach is really about seeing making sure that everyone has a seat at the table making sure that everyone matters whether or not they control land and access to the land or not
1: are we considering that we are all guests on this land and how do we think about land stewardship and who are the different people who need to be involved in those discussions and certainly people who are not currently landowners which includes the uh, descendants of tribes who used to Live on this land? That
0: there's different ways to do that, whether it's land back or soft land back, with the land is still technically owned by an agency, but it is being managed by the original peoples of the area. And that's another way to achieve that without just having to be steered by landowner and have more justice and biocultural restoration involved.
2: Yeah, cooperative stewardship arrangements and such.
1: We believe this way of thinking about connectivity should get pushed out through as a common way to think about things so that we are addressing them through multiple channels considering, you know, land back, soft land back, restoration projects, people who own property who can make decisions that it is it has to go through all of those different channels for connectivity really to be restored and the, thinking about it in these c- terms of co-benefits is what we think the opportunity is regardless of what kind of program that's uh, working on land restoration.
0: Yeah I totally agree and I feel like your paper really wraps you know, presented an effective way to get to that place. I will summarize also with the fact that if you Google or whatever search engine you're using, type in eco-social connectivity, that both these papers, the Butler et al and the Hardy et al papers, should come up pretty quickly and be freely downloadable. If you run into any problems, feel free to contact us and we'd happily send them on. Thank you all for being here. Anything else to say there as we wrap up?
2: I think our last assignment for this podcast is to uh, read a haiku.
0: <laughs> yeah, did you Did you write one, Eric? I haven't yet. I what wrote one to?
1: Eric wrote one.
0: <laughs> oh, man, you two rock.
1: Let's hear the haikus. Okay, here's mine. Uh, The Earth Connected, A Most Elegant System in Which All Life Thrives. And Eric, can you share yours as well?
2: Connectivity, all things interpenetrate. Humans, salmon, streams.
5: The Future Cities Podcast is an outreach effort brought to you by Natura-based solutions for urban resilience in the Anthropocene, or Natura. To learn more, please visit www.natura-net.org. If you have any questions, feedback, or suggestions for future episodes, you can email us at futurecitiespodcast@gmail.com at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at futurecitiespod. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.